Welcome to Caribbean Mystics Podcast, where we marry mysticism, superstition, and lore. I'm your host, Paulina. And I'm your host, Gabrielle. And we are your resident Caribbean mystics. Join us today as we explore the depths of real supernatural stories. Told by real people located right in our very own backyard. Thank you for tuning in on today's episode. But before we begin, please note that this episode contains content regarding infant death that may be upsetting or disturbing for some listeners. On today's episode of the Caribbean Mystics Podcast, two storytellers share three riveting tales passed down to them from the elders of the Frenchtown community on the island of St. Thomas. These legends speak of a Sukunia, one of the most feared entities in the Caribbean region, that was once believed to live in secret among this small French community. I grew up in and around Frenchtown. I lived in Frenchtown for a couple of years um, between elementary school and middle school. When we would walk home from school, there would always be like older French people just like sitting on their porch in the afternoon. As we came in and in the Caribbean or St. Thomas specifically, it's custom that you speak to people when you see them. So we would speak to them, of course, and we'd always have conversations with them about different things in the community. And it was very interesting because we ended up hearing a couple different stories about the Sokoya. I've heard of the Sokoya from the perspective of my family in Trinidad. They speak about it often. A young, beautiful woman dressed in white that lures men into the forest or to their death in some, some nefarious way, right? And it was really interesting to hear the French community kind of recount tangible experiences of observing some type of phenomenon related to what they were describing as a Sokoya. Just one particular story that we were told by one of our neighbors, you know, as we came home from school, that there was a witch that lived in Frenchtown that people call a Sokoya. And at night, she would basically take off her skin like a banana peel. She would peel it off and she would hang it in her dwelling and she would go out to do whatever her missions were for the night. And a couple other people have recounted seeing a ball of light like shooting across the bayside and around Frenchtown. So people associate that activity with this particular witch. She had a jumbi that she used to keep in her house in a little jar. The person who told me the story was a child at the time, and they said that she would allow them to feed the jumbi grains of rice. Um, but it had to be an odd number of rice. And the explanation for that was that if they gave the jumbi an even number of rice, it would grow and break out of the jar and, you know, wreak havoc on the community. So the idea is she hangs up her skin, she goes, she handles her business, and then before sunrise, she comes back and she puts her skin back on. What was described to us as the way to get rid of a Sokoya was that 
wildest spirit of that being has left its casing or its skin that you would throw salt in it. So the story went that while the witch was out handling her business, somebody went and they threw the salt in her skin so she wouldn't be able to get back into it. And that was how people got rid of her at that time. So it was really interesting to hear them talk about it, not in a fearful way, but almost from a, a place of like reverence for this individual. But I imagine the the story about them destroying her skin that that held a lot more fear, you know, when that person was recounting that story because it was a sense of this person is dangerous and they have access to things we can't control. So we have to get rid of it. As a people, we're more superstitious. And I don't want to say superstitious, we're more in tune with the energetic goings-ons of our community. So it was really interesting being able to talk to the elders in our community so freely and openly, you know, as a child, because they're so unassuming and they're open to talk to you, to being able to access some of that first person, you know, encounter and information. Storytelling has always been a very big part of our family. With my mother's side being from Frenchtown, I always heard stories about the Sukuya from Frenchtown. I think my favorite one by far was one told directly from my great-grandmother that she passed down to my grandmother and then she passed it down onto us. When my great-grandmother was a child, she would accompany her mother on trips to St. Thomas for work because during the time St. Bart's was so poor that many men and women would either move over here or come over at months for a time to look for work. They came over here so often that, you know, they made friends who were pretty much like family. On one of these trips, my great-grandmother was walking with a friend through Frenchtown. The friend turns to my great-grandmother and she goes, Oh, let's go see if the old woman selling candy this morning. So during that time, there was a little old couple living in the Twisted Cork area. They sold candies and other treats to little kids. It was known that this older woman had candy but when she didn't they would see a fireball shoot across the sky and in the following morning she would have candy where they lived there was a tall fence surrounding the house so you couldn't really like see into the yard simply in passing you would either have to open the gate or you would have to peep over the fence in order to actually see into the yard. So they're passing by. They hear something like really strange. It sounded like a baby crying, but they couldn't really tell what it was. My great-grandmother turns and she goes, what's that noise? 
And her friend paused and she listened for a moment. So at this point, the two of them are both very, very curious as to what this sound was. The friend turns to my great-grandmother and she goes, well, help me up over the fence so I could see what's going on. My great-grandmother, she was a little bit reluctant, but she was also very curious. So she agreed to help her friend over the fence. She's looking into the yard, pretty much seeing like no to little signs of life. The door, I want to say, was left open, which at the time, this wasn't very weird for families to not be home, leave their doors open, but they couldn't hear any like pots clinging. They couldn't smell any food cooking. Like they wasn't hearing any voices. They could tell nobody was home. They listened and they listened and they could continue hearing this what sounded like a baby crying, which was weird again because this couple, nobody knew that they had kids or even grandkids. The friend is looking and looking and looking and she's not seeing anything. And then finally she sees something. It's two red glowing eyes looking right at her through the window. This really spooked her. So she like pretty much fell over the fence, fell onto my great grandmother and the two of them like fell to the ground. My great grandmother, she was like startled. So she looked at her, she was like, what happened? What you see? She just grabbed her wrist and she was like, let's go. We need to go, we need to go now. The terror in my great grandmother's friend's eyes, it was enough to make her say, okay, yeah, we got it, like we gotta go. So the two of them just take off running. They ran and ran and ran until they got home. Later in the night, my great-grandmother said that she looked into the sky and saw a bright glowing fireball peeling through the clear starry night sky. And all she could do at that point was pray that whatever it was, was not coming for her or her friend. So years later, there's this other story that went around. A group of people were passing like the same area in Frenchtown. Again, they heard what sounded like a baby crying. So they were like, well, where's that coming from? You know, the baby sounded like it was in distress, so they wanted to see what was going on. So as they're looking for the sound, the cries like slowly start to fade away. And finally, they bang the corner and they find a baby floating face down in a basin of water. They saw an old woman, which, you know, at this point, one could assume that was a sukuya right there. Something went down. It was like an altercation or something. Police were called. They took the woman to jail. And by the following morning, they realized that she had broken out. So the story goes. After everything went down and the group of people came back, the baby was not there. There was like no sign that this baby was ever really there. No one knew whatever happened to the baby. The way the story from my great-grandmother ended, ended in a way where it made it seem like there was a connection between the Sukuya and the old couple. I don't know that there ever really was, but I always grew up hearing that, you know, these stories are told to scare us, to teach us to mind our own business. But I think a part of me always wanted to like believe that they were true.
to Caribbean Mystics. I'm your host, Paulina. Welcome, welcome. I'm your host, Gabrielle. And this was another fantastic episode, if I do say so myself. Oh, yeah. I love that we're coming back down to Caribbean folklore and legends and historical reference because... That is exactly what we're going to dive into in this episode. I think this story is very near and dear to my heart because I actually grew up hearing my mother speak of the Sukunya. For those of you who don't know, Paulina and I are both of French descent. And so my mother is from Frenchtown and my father is from Northside. And so my childhood ran the gamlet of French customs because there are notable differences between growing up in either French community on the island. And so I was able to have a glimpse at both communities and participate in a lot of the traditions. So I'm super grateful about that. I didn't know that. You have it from both sides, in Frenchtown and Northside. That's <laughs> yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> it was a stigma back in the day where it was just like a Frenchtown Frenchie and a Northside Frenchie. <gasps> People within the French community would not be happy about that mixture because it was a there's a lot of classism, I think, on mm. both sides. And it's really interesting because if those class differences didn't exist, like the class perceptions, because I feel like everyone was struggling. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a comparison of who was struggling more. So your parents were like the Romeo and Juliet of the French community. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like I can't be the only one. Like, I know that there's these unions throughout our history here mm-hmm. in the island. It just hasn't been something that has been encouraged because there's just, there's just a lot of stigma attached to it. I kind of want you to explain to our listeners that are unfamiliar of what the French community is in the Caribbean. The French community in the Virgin Islands, specifically on the island of St. Thomas, has been coined with the name Frenchie. Some people perceive this as a negative name. Some people use it as a badge of pride. For me, I don't mind being called a Frenchie and it actually gives me a great deal of, you know, happiness when I am called as such. But I understand that everybody has their own perspective. So the French community on the island uh, of St. Thomas started coming here and like, the late 1600s into the 1700s and they've come from a few different islands in the caribbean so you have frenchies that have come from saint kitts guadeloupe saint bart's saint martin but most of the frenchies on the island of saint thomas came from saint bots and prior to that they had come from france they were french huguenots who were looking for religious freedoms and so they were given this opportunity to colonize St. Bart's which at that point in time didn't really have much going on on it because it was such a St. Bart's is a very dry land some of the smallest rainfall totals in the Caribbean region and so it's very hard to do anything and so when they got there they quickly realized that you know if they didn't find ways to make money and bring it back to the island that they would end up being very impoverished and so People started coming to the island of St. Thomas because at this point in time, St. Thomas was known for its commerce. It was a major shipping hub in the Caribbean. And this is how come St. Thomas, I feel like, is very diverse because people were constantly coming to this island from Mm -hmm. Europe, from other Caribbean islands, from even South America, you know, like and and using St. Thomas as a shipping port. So French people would come back and forth. And as Christy says in her story, you know, like things were so rough in St. Bart's that her great great grandmother would have to come from St. Bart's to St. Thomas in order to get work 
a feasible amount of money in order to send back to St. Bart's and take care of the family. But what I think is really interesting about the French community is that they were able to develop two sub-communities within the island of St. Thomas. One would be French Town, one is Northside. And while I feel like Frenchies participate in Virgin Islands culture and to a great degree have contributed to the culture of the Virgin Islands, the French community also maintains its own intrinsic culture that was brought from their own French islands. And so as a child growing up in a French household, my parents used a lot of the French names, like a lot of French terminology, and that's how we were raised. And it's really interesting because even though a lot of the Frenchies from Northside and French Town came from St. Bart's, my parents have very different experiences as it relates to language. That's interesting. Yeah, like a lot of the French terms my mother would use, my father wouldn't be familiar with, but he would use, you know, like different French, because St. Bart's is linguistically very extensive. And so there's a lot of different forms of French that's spoken on that island, which is one of the divisions between the two communities. I find that really fascinating because we're such a small island. We're only 13 miles long and three miles wide. So just that much diversity within an even smaller community on the island is uh, really fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. There's just differences, you know, Mm -hmm. like unless you're in the community or you're growing up around the community, you really don't. You can't really tell, but there is a value placed on, on hard work and requiring your children to know what it is to work hard. Not that that's not something that the average Virgin Islander experiences, but it's a focal point growing up as a Frenchie. Like, it is a focal point that you know how to get your own food and grow your own food. Like, food, and it probably stems back to the days of being in intense poverty and not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Food is a a very massive part of focus, is making sure that you can sustain your family. Very industrious and resilient. This reminds me of a story actually in Frenchtown about the St. Anne's Chapel that's on top of Gallows Hill in Frenchtown. It's kind of a staple in Frenchtown. It's at the top of the hill and surrounded by all the little houses below. It was completed in 1921, but it was actually built by the people in the community. And they would carry buckets of stone and sand and gravel up the hill. The reason they built their own, this well, from what I researched, is that the community was laughed at when they used to go to St. Peter and Paul Church, which is another church downtown a few miles away from Frenchtown. They were laughed at because they didn't have shoes. People would look down on them. Who are these impoverished people coming into this church? So the community wanted to build their own church, and it's been around ever since. And I just thought that was such an amazing story about what we were talking about resilience and how this community decided to take matters into their own hands and create their own chapel and place of worship, which is kind of ironic because they fled from Catholicism and then we came back and now most of the community are again Catholic. Even where that church was built, it's really interesting because the name of it is Gallows Hill and people there was an actual gallow, like they'd hang people at the top of that hillside. So now they've changed. Now it's more lovingly known as Church Hill, which I think is a good change of name. But it's really interesting. And I'm actually going to swing back this point about the church later on because I discovered something extremely interesting. But I need to tie it into the Sukunya that we were talking about in Frenchtown. 
I think there's a lot of interesting paranormal things that have happened in Frenchtown, and I'm sure we will get more stories about it. Definitely probably has to do with that hill and the executions that have happened. But back to Sukhoyat, let's go into her and who this legendary Caribbean vampire is. No one really knows the exact origins, but she's known by a few different names. The Bahamas, I think, is like old hag. Some islands call her uh, Lagaru or Luguru. But she's pretty much known as a Caribbean vampire slash witch. Usually in the form of an old woman or a beautiful young lady. By day, that is her disguise or human guise. And by night, her skin comes off and she appears as a ball of fire. And that's her true form. She flies around the night sky and she creeps into the rooms of her victims. They say that she can fit within little cracks and under the doors and proceeds to suck their blood, either killing them or just leaving a couple marks and people wake up feeling lethargic and drained. She belongs to a class of spirits known as Jumbies, which we've talked about in our first episode. So some people believe that she was brought to the Caribbean from European countries in the form of French vampire myths, but other people believe that she was of African legends and descents. Another debate is that it's an intermingle of both cultures. I would say it's actually an intermingling. I agree. The story of the Sukunya is mostly found on French islands. There seems to be this interweaving, like you don't really hear about the Sukunya. I mean, in the Virgin Islands, you didn't hear about the Sukunya. Mm -hmm. That was a entity that was specifically acknowledged in the French subgroups of the island. Mm. But that is not inherently a Virgin Islands recognized entity because you ask a Virgin Island now what it is, they're not going to know or they may know by hearing it in passing, but it's not something that they grew up you know, like mm-hmm. in that belief system. That's true because I actually didn't even know about this until you mentioned it to me when we talked about Peter and Ryan's story, which I realized yeah. we forgot to mention her in there too. To add in, for people who have experienced the sukunya, it's oftentimes said that if you put a bunch of rice by your windowsill or by your door frame, it helps to protect the home and to stop her from coming in because she, like Jumbies, and here is where you see the African belief systems come into play, she has a proclivity for counting. And so she will be so steadfast in counting these grains of rice or these little specks of salt that she would have to leave before the sun comes up because another important facet of the Sukunya is that she is nocturnal. And so she cannot be outside of her skin by time the sunlight come up. In true vampire sense, in order to completely get rid of her altogether, when you find her skin, you're supposed to throw salt on it because salt dissolves the skin. And so she's stuck as a fireball and then the sun rises and completely like, I guess, destroys her. So in the French community, like in both Sarah Anna and and Christie's story, they were talking about this ball of fire flashing across the sky. That was so synonymous with what they had already known about the Sukunya that all it did was feed that perception Mm -hmm. and the ball of fire i have heard so many people say that they've seen it that it's kind of hard to discount ball lightning (laughs) i'm gonna just say that (laughs) how come the ball lightning will only go in french tone i don't know man maybe it's like a natural phenomenon with the lightning storms and that speck of ground that is attractive (laughs) But we'll go into my skeptic points later. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) 
But one thing I do want to mention too about Sukunya is that the stories that I've read about her can vary from her being completely evil, dealing with black magic and sucking people's blood and hunting down people or men specifically. But also her story is that she is kind and that she only goes after those that have done evil or have wronged her or wronged somebody else. Well, so. that's comforting. That's why she does give the Chirinam candy. <laughs> because right? she, ha- she has a soft spot for children. <sighs> Same with Cowfoot Woman. I mean, we're kind of going into this, this theme. The old woman of the village is always this traditional evil character. Yeah. Or it's that young, beautiful woman that's over-sexualized and she's she's a witch because she's too damn sexy and she's <laughs> brainwashing dudes, you know, like, <laughs> and yep. they can't handle it. <laughs> God forbid men have to take responsibility, Masana. <laughs> For real, right? I mean, this totally goes into the history of of witches and the burning times and the war on women. Yeah. I kind of think of the burning times as. And what's interesting about this particular story is I think it's our very first story where a living person was identified as some sort of entity. Mm. And so I think about, you know, like there was a bit of compassion when I was going through the research of this because it's just like this woman, I can't imagine the way because my mother like knows who this woman is. Like she knew her name. I'm not going to call it because I don't want to harass this woman's soul any longer. I think she's been through enough. But this was an elderly woman who had like a real life person who was seen as somebody who was like, you know, evil and a witch and some sort of trickster. And, you know, like I can't imagine what her and her husband experienced in Frenchtown because it's such a small community. All of this melee pounding Mm -hmm. about them and their extracurricular activities. I could only imagine that she was ill-treated or she struggled to have like real life relationships with people because if people were kind to her, it would be out of like... I just don't want you to suck my blood, suck your boss. <laughs> so there's a little bit of compassion in that as well. You know, I'm usually somebody that comes with the magic and all of that. In this particular situation, because it was someone, who, a physical person that people were seeing every day and talking about every day, there's a bit of, I wonder, you know, like what she did that made people see her as different because this is she probably didn't have very many friends she probably wasn't very well known she probably was a little bit different maybe she had, she had different interests and people started to construct these stories around who she is and who knows maybe she is a sukunya you know like maybe she is all of these things because there are so many stories that are wrapped around this particular person and I also think about the extreme damaging effects that something like that would cause to her and her family if the rumors are not true. Yeah, this is not a new concept of society's structure and small villages and small towns. There's always that outcast, especially if you didn't fall in line with the stereotype of women, with the stereotype of just how to be a contributing member of the town. So a lot of them were demonized and casted aside and look, almost looked like a burden upon the town. The witch trials, which weren't just in Salem, they started in Europe around the early 15th century and they lasted 300 years. The majority of people that were targeted were usually female, marginalized people, minorities, elderly, poor, 
usually people isolated from society or sexually deviant, which are all characteristics that were outside of the gendered expectations. I also want to emphasize these people were the town's midwives. They were the herbalists. They were the medicine woman. They were the gardeners. They were anyone who had any type of connection to nature that did not fit into the everyday locksmith and blacksmith and shoemaker and homemaker. Like these were women who were in their community and were supplying their community with the knowledge that was long kept and passed down from tradition to tradition to just do regular things like bring children into the world or cure ailments. There's a big theory out there as well that it's like they claim that men wanted to take over the medical industry. But I totally agree with you. It touched on a lot of women of quote unquote power and like a genocide, not but not genocide. Genocide, like, but also like these men felt threatened. But it was also religion too, their belief systems back then. It was so so during this time, especially in the Way- Salem, the Wayland, <laughs> the Salem witch trials, like it was a very puritanical fire and brimstone rain upon you if you don't follow the very strict laws that are in place. You know, it was very strong constraints around people. And psychologically, just to go a little bit off the beaten path, psychologically, people who live in those type of strong constraints end up acting out in severe ways because they have no way to get out this normal human condition of like completely sheep you know there's a certain part of the human spirit that requires freedom and where you do not where you look in societies that did not allow for freedom you see major things occur as a result of this refraining from allowing people to have free will you know at the very precipice of of god is free will these women probably gathered in secret because of that. Whenever these women stepped outside their prescribed roles, they became targets. And then it became women versus women. Times people were getting paranoid. Oh my God, my neighbor just got sick and died. It must have been that old woman down the street that does nothing with her life. And again, we go into the socio-historical explanation of why is the old woman of the village always a traditional evil character in folklore and many cultures? And I found a good read on that online that women naturally live longer than men. And more often than not, a woman lived to great age where the husband would usually die younger in war or sickness or through an accident because, you know, shit back then was brutal. (laughs) People died on the regular. So old people were more often than not women. In a lot of traditional cultures, women did not enjoy the same rights as men. So there are many accounts of widows being total outcasts from the village life. And the people of the village would covet her land and her possessions for themselves, especially if the woman had no sons or men or husband to protect her. So that ugly, wrinkled, lonesome old woman was a burden to the village life. When she had no protectors, people invented witch stories around her, killed her, sharing her possessions, her land, her house, her livestock amongst themselves. I really started sympathizing with this woman because, you you know, rumors can spread like wildfire in a small community. I completely agree. And, you know, when you talk about specifically the Salem witch trials, there was a the start of the Salem witch trials was very much an attack against women. But it was also like 
a lot of people don't notice and to bring it back to caribbean history the salem witch trials the very first person that was accused of being a witch was a woman named tichaba who was a slave and she was brought from the island of barbados her origins prior to that people aren't very sure of so some people think she was from guyana some people think she was a native of barbados but the long and short is she was brought from the caribbean and so she already had the stigma on her when these rumors started circulating because she was black and because she was a woman but also because she was from the caribbean it was expected that she had been consorting with people who knew how to do black magic and so it put her into the like she literally checked all the boxes of all the ways in which people would look at you and ostracize you and penalize you from the rest of the community and so it's really easy for the salem witch trials to get started and then from there it went out of control that's horrible and i often think of the human i don't want to say human nature but maybe like primitive human nature as if you don't fit in with the pack i agree you're left on your own pack mentality i completely agree now i think that this might be I think for the Sukunya, like growing up, when my mother would speak of the Sukunya, it was always through the lens of an entity. Like while everyone knew that there was this woman in Frenchtown who was believed to be a Sukunya, I feel like there is also this belief system that she doesn't have to be a real life person, but it can in fact, she can remain, you know, like this Jumbi-like character. I totally agree with that. And I also think there's a bit of excitement about having this urban legend in your hometown. Christy kind of says it at the end too. She's like, part of me kind of wishes it was real, you know? And speaking of Christy, because I was actually bringing it around to that, Christy talks about her great, great grandmother. So the girl in the story's mother, I just want people to know like this story occurred during Danish times. You know, during that time, records were not very well kept and this was over a hundred years ago so there is a lot of variation that has happened but it also speaks to the it is the testament of how oral tradition continues to survive because this story was passed down from her great grandmother to her grandmother to her mother to her and in my own family like it's been passed from a very similar lineage so it's very interesting how over a hundred years this story has continued within the confines of Frenchtown has continued to circulate and permeate households and the way that you bring up your children because as Christy said it in her story like these stories was told so that way you would one learn how to mind your business which isn't you know such a bad isn't such a bad quality to like know but it was also you know the importance of respecting your parents and people who do negative have negative happen to them don't take the shortcut home because you don't know what's lurking in the bush there were these little micro lessons within the story that helped to shape our childhoods and so when i think about the sukunya I may phrase it differently for my children because I don't know as someone coming from a paranormal, you know, supernatural lens, I don't know that I want to instill fear in them, but it's definitely something I intend on passing on to my children, like just the story of it, because this is how you keep the culture and traditions alive. I agree. And I also feel a sense of compassion, even if she was or is a real entity, 
I've always been more compassionate for the the hated ones. Yeah. I always want to know, like, what is her origin story and why is she quote unquote evil? Which we yeah. go into a lot with that our episodes. Because there's so many stories about this woman from Frenchtown, I a thousand percent believe that somebody have the origin story. Whenever it comes to me, we could do a follow-up episode because there's so many stories about this one person. And I heard that there were actually two Sukunyas that lived in Frenchtown. So I'm glad you said this because it reminded me. I'm trying to look for skeptic points on this story. So I wanted to find a police report about this incident that she talks about. Obviously, like, I could not find something online from an occurrence that happened that far back. But I feel like this is something I literally have to physically go to the public library or the genealogy library and physically search. So I would love to do a follow-up episode if I find something, too, and we hear more information. Correct. I'm sure we'll get more Sukunya stories because there's so many to talk about. And there's another story coming out of Frenchtown. I just need I just need to talk to the people them. But there's a very interesting story that we are going to bring forward in season two if I can just find this one person. Frenchtown has so many stories coming out. Oh my gosh. If you ever visit St. Thomas, go check out Frenchtown. It's it's such a beautiful town too. I've always loved the little houses and everything. But um, absolutely. One last skeptic point, other than the ones that we mentioned, is what you were saying that this story has been passed down over time, and stories can get lost and exaggerated, and it changes, you know. So it's like a game of telephone, and I always believe that that's where legends originate. At one point, it was a truth, and then it became a story, and then it became a legend. I think it's very commendable that she told us this story because this podcast like one of our biggest goals is it is a footprint that we can leave a digital footprint as Gabrielle likes to call it and I'm extremely grateful to Sarah Ann who came from a different lens like she was just and this happens so much in the Caribbean where you're minding your business (laughs) you're walking home from school and the elders pull you up (laughs) get you wrapped into conversation and before you know it you're there for hours but you've left with such historical depth and gleaning this information just by the elders you know like shout out to the elders that take the time to impart this generational wisdom on young people even when there was no apparent gain i agree i love that and thank you again storytellers for sharing this Thank you so much, storytellers. You know, quite frankly, we didn't even have Christy's story until Saturday, like Saturday that just passed. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why yeah. I couldn't dig through police reports because <laughs> I had like a few days. But again, if we find anything, oh, we're definitely going to do an update on this. Absolutely. I'm completely down. Thank you again to everybody that decides to listen to us and support us. Mm-hmm. Please. Please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We're trying to get on the new and noteworthy. That's our goal. Yes. And we have to read it. With your help. Yes. We have to get into (laughs) the algorithm. And we are already in the works of season two. So if anybody have a good up, good up Mm -hmm. story, please know that you have the option of remaining anonymous or you have the option of changing your voice. So that way the story can be told, but your um, anonymity can be intact. All right, you guys. Have a beautiful day. Wishing everyone a creepy, spooky week. Thank you for listening to Caribbean Mystics Podcast. 
If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share with your family and friends. Like, follow, and subscribe to keep up with all of our spooky Caribbean content. Do you have a story you'd like to share that took place in the Caribbean? Email us at CaribbeanMysticsPodcast at gmail.com. That's CaribbeanMysticsPodcast at gmail.com. Or check the show notes for more info. Caribbean Mystics is created and hosted by Paulina Creaky and Gabrielle Carrard. Theme song is Folktale Juve Rhythm by Umi Marcano. This episode of Caribbean Mystics is brought to you by Alexandra Marie Photography for all your life moments. Raw and authentic captures in the unique landscapes of the Virgin Islands. She specializes in wedding proposals, events, maternity, senior portraits, and family portraits. And the great thing about it is she offers a local discount of $50 off and wedding packages and loyalty discounts for returning clients. She's available to shoot on St. Thomas, St. John, and Water Island. Alexandra Marie Photography. Call 340-690-2062 to book your next shoot or check her website at alexandramariephotography.zenfolio.com. Sage Sanctuary. This one-of-a-kind metaphysical shop is located on St. Thomas in the Yacht Haven Grand Shopping Plaza. They offer a unique collection of esoteric books, tarot and oracle decks, crystals, incense, apothecary herbs, and mystical resources to support the exploration of the sacred self. The sanctuary is home to multiple mediums, channels, and gifted psychics offering a glimpse into the seen and unseen. Akashic record readings, tarot readings, aura photography, dream interpretation, astrology sessions, various modalities of Reiki, energy healing, and more. Additionally, the sanctuary hosts a community calendar of magical events including weekly and monthly hands-on workshops, expert lectures, guided meditations, sound baths, certification classes, and more. Make sure to call Sage Sanctuary today at 340-775-7253 or visit their website at sagesanctuary.com. That's sage, S-A-J-E, sanctuary.com.